Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. I've been talking every week, uh, I think the three previous weeks, and now this is the fourth one, on the praying and the confessing church. The two attributes that I would say are an ache and a burden within my soul that would be evidenced in our church, that we would not just esteem prayer, we would not just esteem the confession and the bold confession of Jesus Christ in this generation, but that we would do it. And many of us know exactly what I mean by the difference, the differentiation between the esteeming of these things and the doing of these things. Many of us in here, I would say probably the high majority of us in here, know the importance of prayer. Maybe better than most people on earth, we know the importance of prayer. And yet, I don't know if I would fully describe us as a praying church. We're beginning to be, but I would say it's in the infantile stages of it. And the same with the bold confession. We are a church that esteems evangelism. We are a church that esteems bearing witness to the grandeur of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, for the most part, I would say we don't do it. We do not lead people to Jesus Christ. We may live in our own private lives, in our homes, boldly and make decisions that are right with Scripture. Praise God for that. But there is something more that is needed. And I want to press on that today and basically get us into that realm of uncomfortable where we must live as Christians. We are picking up a cross and following Jesus. We are not looking for ways to comfort our life and to make our life easier in this earth, but we are looking for ways to boldly proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ while we are still on this earth. We have one life to live, and I want to live it well. The Gospel Challenge, a study in the basics of a praying and confessing church. So I keep hitting on this point over and over again, but basically what my sermons have been is an overflow of what God is hitting on in my life. And I do not want to pretend and try and make it sound like I have these things figured out, whereas you are in need, and I am condescending to come before you today and pass along this information, even though it's so obvious to me. This is something that God is working in my soul. And even though the truths that I'm about to share with you are well known in this body, There's a difference between truth that informs and truth that performs. And I never want to be just a guy who gives truth that informs. However, the fact that I have given so many messages on prayer and so many messages on the gospel, and yet we still are a church that doesn't necessarily wake up every morning and say, I must have a soul today, shows me that I have given far too much truth that informs and not enough truth that performs. And I am desirous to see that that which comes forth out of our lives as a church, starting with me, is a life that is performing the truths of the gospel and not just informing myself and others of it. The gospel is meant 
to bring life. And when it brings life, there is an evidence of that life, and it is called fruit. And fruit, if it is to be born in our life, is more than just love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's other believers. And that's where I would say, because I would, I would say that our church is bearing the fruit of the Spirit, as would be described in Galatians 5, in a beautiful and profound way. This is a very special body. And in a time, in a generation, it's funny that I would even bring criticism to our body, because for most of us, we've seen something maybe for the first time in our life and coming in and witnessing what's taking place here. However, I think it's a rightful statement to say, are we bearing fruits of new believers Is our life bearing that evidence that we have been transformed? A healthy marriage, you'll notice that something comes forth out of it. Children, a healthy Christian life, you'll notice that there is something that comes forth out of it. Children of the faith. My afternoon with Ray Comfort. Many of you know who Ray Comfort is, uh, but he's known for his audacity, and that's... uh, Sort of a play on words since he's coming out with a movie currently uh, called Audacity. But he's not just coming out with a movie called Audacity. This guy really is audacious for the gospel. And one thing it proved to me was how unaudacious, I know that that's probably not actually a word that I just made it up, uh, lacking in audacity, my own life is. Because a lot of people consider me bold for the gospel. In certain situations, maybe I am. But when I'm around Ray Comfort, I do not feel bold at all. I feel like a mouse wanting to hide. So I spent an afternoon with Ray Comfort. I showed up at his Living Waters headquarters in Southern California. And so we go out. We're going out for lunch. So I go out to lunch with Ray Comfort. And, you know, he's, he's supposed to be spending time with Eric Ludi. Okay, isn't that what this whole thing's about? No. For Ray Comfort, yes, he is going to be with Eric Ludi for lunch. But he's on a mission. The man is always on a mission. In that little short time period, whatever it was, a few hours that I was with this man, I don't know how many people he came up to to share the gospel. I mean, it was tremendously uncomfortable for me. Not because of what he was doing, but because of the fact that I was realizing I wasn't doing it. And it was him doing it. And I, okay, there's certain things that are just not right. For instance, we're in a restaurant and he comes up, the lady who's going to seat us at the table, you know, that, that lady that just sort of says, how many in your party? Well, he uh, slips her one of those billion-dollar bills and says, could you give us a good seat? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> then there's this whole table, you know, of like, I don't know, 10, 10 people, all from the military. And so he gets, I, I'm walking out of the restaurant. We paid, we, you go out. You don't just hang out in a restaurant near someone else's table and start asking them questions. Oh, excuse me, guys, could I interrupt you for a second and ask you a question? No, 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 I'm leaving. Uh, I, I'm not with him. It's really interesting to see that dynamic, to see the boldness of a lion in this man. And what it did was it showed me that there's something missing. I'm bold for the gospel. But why is it that that boldness seems to melt away with all sorts of social justifications when it comes to that restaurant? It's like, wow, you can be bold, but you don't just stand up in the midst of a restaurant and start proclaiming Jesus Christ. Who told us that? Where did we get our rule of social etiquette? And why is it that it's controlling us from being able to deliver the goods of the gospel? John Oxtabi. 
I am witnessing daily the conversion of sinners. I seldom go out, but God gives me some fruit. This man's nickname was Praying Johnny. Can we say that? One of my desires is that every single one of us in here would begin to have resonance with that. Have you ever read a quote and you're like, yeah, I know what he's talking about. How about that one? Do we know what he's talking about? Is that something that we can resonate with and go, yeah, amen, Johnny. I'm experiencing the same thing. Let me read the quote again. I want you to see if there's a resonance inside of you. I am witnessing daily the conversion of sinners. I seldom go out, but God gives me some fruit. Richard Baxter, if your hearts be not set on the end of your labors, and you do not long to see the conversion and edification of your hearers, and do not study and preach in hope, you are not likely to see much fruit of it. It is an ill sign of a false self-seeking heart that can be content to be still doing and see no fruit of their labor. Many of us are laboring all day long for Jesus Christ. But what Richard Baxter says is it's an ill sign of a false self-seeking heart if we are content in still continuing to do what we're doing and not seeing fruits of our labor, what farmer would go out, labor all day in the field, and be fine with the fact that there was no harvest, no fruit came forth? I think it would be a very discontented farmer. How many of us as gospel tears are laboring day in and day out saying, our life is for you, Jesus, It's before you. It's laid before you at the altar. I belong to you. Whatever you want to do in my life, do it. This is like the prayer of the church at Ellerslie. Are we content with the fact that we are not bearing fruit as we ought to bear? What are we doing here? So I'm going to have a couple different men answer that question. Isaac Watts. Listen to this. Go into the public assembly with a design to strike and persuade some souls there into repentance and salvation. Go to open blind eyes, to unstop deaf ears, to make the lame walk, to make the foolish wise, to raise those that are dead in trespasses and sins to a heavenly and divine life, and to bring guilty rebels to return to the love and obedience of their maker by Christ Jesus, the great reconciler, that they may be pardoned and saved. Go to diffuse the Savior of Christ and his gospel through a whole assembly and to allure souls to partake of his grace and glory. John Wesley. I've been pondering this quote over and over again. This is excerpted from his 12 rules. You have nothing to do but save souls. I I got stuck on that one line. Because, whoa, 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 John. You have nothing to do but save souls. This was the, the 12 rules for all the pastors in the Methodist church. So, if I was a Methodist pastor, this would be one of the rules. Eric, you have nothing to do but save souls. Hey, you ever tried to run an organization, John? I got meetings, I got uh, financials, I have uh, counseling things I have to do, I have discipleship. You, ever, I mean, you have to teach every day, you have to train these things. That's, that's an oversimplification. Therefore, spend to be spent in this work. It is not your business to preach so many times but to save as many souls as you can, to bring as many sinners as you possibly can to repentance, and with all your power to build them up in that holiness without which they cannot see the Lord. Discipleship matters. So one of the things that I'm wrestling with is I am what would be considered a proponent of bringing back biblical discipleship to the church. Eh, That's what I'm known for. 
passionate. Discipleship's been lost in the church. Bring it back. However, in my discipleship, I have a desire to see a praying and a confessing church born. And what I feel like God is doing is he's correcting something inside of me. And it's, its ramifications are so far-reaching that I'm staggered. That if I swallow this as true, everything changes in my life, in my daily structure, in my daily schedule. Everything begins to change the moment you put a higher priority on something that you've been putting it as a lower priority. I don't know if I could give you a visual description here, but there's discipleship, okay? And it's like a cog. It's like an engine. It does something. And right beneath it, being moved by this discipleship is prayer and evangelism or prayer and confession, okay? So this is how Ellerslie is set up. We disciple so that people would pray and evangelize. We're discipling for prayer and evangelism. And yet, one of the things you would have heard me say even just a little bit ago about this church is that we're not praying. Uh, How many times do I need to talk about it? I don't want to just say, let's pray, let's pray. Let's actually be a praying church. And how about evangelism? We're just not doing it. We all esteem it, but we're just not doing it. Is it another sermon that we need about evangelism? And then one day we'll all just go, oh, you mean we're actually supposed to talk to people about Jesus? You see, why is it that there's a stunting that's taking place? And so here's, remember my little illustration, discipleship, and then here's the supporting things. That what God seems to be showing me is that these two things, prayer and evangelism, go up above discipleship. That discipleship is meant to be underneath them, supporting them. That you pray... And you lead people to Christ, but you need to know how to pray, and you need to know how to give the gospel. And so the discipleship is promoting that instead of the discipleship attempting to create that. The ramifications are far-reaching. Discipleship matters, but is there something that must be considered even more important? Listen to this quote by Oswald J. Smith. Very convicting, because Oswald J. Smith basically had an Ellerslie. And he was so sickly, he always wanted to go on the mission field, but he was so sickly that he ended up just accepting the assignment of, all right, I'm going to build missionaries. His life is actually fairly similar to mine in a lot of different ways. And so when he writes this quote, I found myself uh, doing some soul scratching. There are men who feel they have special talents for the edification of believers. And so they give themselves entirely to building up Christians in the faith. Who are they? Who's that? This was where I was sidetracked. What? Sidetracked? That's a good mission. I felt that I had special gifts for teaching and speaking to young Christians on the deeper life. And so I prepared a number of addresses with the idea of devoting my time to this work until God mercifully opened my eyes and showed me how far I was astray. Why did I stick this quote on the screen before all of you? There is nothing that will deepen Christian experience, edify believers, and build them up in the faith so rapidly and thoroughly as seeing souls saved. Deep Holy Spirit meetings where the power of God is working mightily in conviction and salvation of sinners will do more for Christians than the teaching of years without it. Such was the experience of David Brainerd. In writing of the Indians, among whom he labored, he says, Many of these people have gained more doctrinal knowledge of divine truths since I first visited them in June last 
than could have been instilled into their minds by the most diligent use of proper and instructive means for whole years together without such a divine influence. The two. Now, this is going to sound familiar because in the last three messages previous, I've mentioned two. There's always two. There's a silent church and there's a confessing church. There's the church that when the difficulties of the age arise, which we use the term the Aryan paragraph, in Nazi Germany, when Hitler issued the legal uh, construct that the Jews were basically going to be ousted from society, that they were going to be treated as lesser, and then that ended up leading to the Nuremberg Laws, which literally ended up leading to their execution. Whenever the Aryan paragraph stands before the church, how do we respond? There are those that are silent and passive and do nothing. And there are those that confess. And in Germany, it was known as the confessing church. There's always two in all of history. There's tares and there's wheat. There's goats, but there's also sheep. Which one are we? And so one of the things I proposed, I don't know what it was now, four weeks ago, is I said, I'm concerned that we are tares and that we are goats but I desperately want to be wheat and sheep. I want to be a confessing church. I'm concerned. In in China, there's a three-self church, and then there's a house church or an underground church that's illegal. Which one are we here? Because we don't have to define between legal and illegal. However, we do know that there is correct and there is incorrect in our culture. Which one are we? Are we the ones that are willing to boldly represent the truth of Jesus Christ? you know that it's unfashionable in Christianity today to believe that the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God? Do you know that it's unfashionable in Christianity today? In Christianity, not just in the world, in Christianity to believe that Jesus is, in fact, God. Do you know that it's unfashionable in Christianity today to believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father? Hey, people! We must be the confessing church. Hama and Lagos, two Greek words that when put together equal the word confession. The word Hama means like, similar. And so I use the illustration of a mirror. If I moved, then the mirror would move. The image in the mirror would move. It would be in direct relationship with the movements. And that's exactly what this word means. You see, Jesus, the Lagos, is moving. He's saying something. Logos is Jesus. The word is what it's translated as. So the word of God, the word of God in text, the word of God in person, that's the logos. And that logos, when it moves, when it speaks, we as the church are in perfect agreement with it. Where it goes, we go. And it doesn't matter if it leads to a prison cell. It doesn't matter if it leads to a cross. We go where he goes. And that is the confession church. That is the wheat. That is the sheep. Homologeo is the word, living, moving, and speaking in perfect agreement and stride with the word of God. The hallmark of the twice-born, they are giving away that which has been given to them. They are confessors. How will they know? Well, we will be marked by love, love for one another. How will they know that we are actually alive? We'll bear fruit. You see, a branch has been given something. It's been given living sap. So what does it produce? Fruit. It gives What is going on inside of it comes out. You can always see that it's a living branch. If we're a living church, there must be fruit. I mean, there's no argument here. I think all of us know this. We all know this. Why is it so hard for the American church to somehow awaken to the most basic things in Scripture? We must be producing fruit. 
if we are living, if the living God is inside of us and we are a living church, then it will be evidenced in this natural realm. May it be so today. Whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, whoever is not in stride with my word, whoever, when my word moves this way, they move the opposite way. Or, when my word moves this way, they go passive, they go silent. Whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. The issue of confession is not a small one in Scripture. It is a very significant one that separates sheep from goats because the goats do nothing. When Jesus is moving this way, they do nothing. But the sheep, they're in stride with what Jesus is doing. The wheat and the tares can look similar, but they have a very different end. The wheat are purified and used, stored up in granaries and used to feed God, whereas the tares have no other purpose but to be thrown into the fire. Recognizing our inadequacy, I think it's important for you to note that though we talk about these things, there is a trembling in our souls and there's a recognition because when you, we've spent three straight weeks previous on this exact point, and if I were to say how many Christians... How many new believers have we seen come out of these past three weeks? Now, I know we've been edified. I know we've been stirred. I know we've been moved. But my question is, how many new believers have come out of this? That's why we can't call it a revival. What we have is a readiness for revival. But we need to be revived. What is that? What what does it look like if we were revived? There would be something imparted to us that would equip us and enable us to move past our reticence. To move past our, our what's, the, what's the term, uh, cowardice. It would move us past it. Suddenly it would like melt away. It would have no ability to block us from moving forward. We've seen it. We've been infused with it. That's what we need. That's what we ask for. That which would press us beyond whatever we're at now. We need more. Let us not be satisfied with a good prayer meeting. That good prayer meeting is to ask for the power to go, to do, to live Christianity, to bear the fruit of a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. Drawing a line in the sand. Our cowardice and self-justification has ruled for long enough. How many of us can point to different situations, maybe even in the past few weeks, where we know that we're supposed to be speaking... So we say, God, I'm willing. God, I'm willing. And then when we get into a situation where we have a thought go through our head like speak, we have a justification that immediately follows us as, well, that, that, this isn't what I was thinking about. This isn't what I should do. This, uh, God, if, if they come to me and say, could you explain to me the hope that you have inside of you? I will gladly share it. You ever notice that these situations are few and far between when someone comes to you and says, are you a Christian? Yes, I am. Could you tell me how to find Christ? I would love to. (laughs) That's not how it works, but we have somehow, in our American construct of Christianity, created a barrier between us and the lost to say, well, when the lost come knocking on my door, I will answer. If the naked come to my door, I'll give them clothes. If the poor come to me, I will help them. We have lost the idea of seeking and saving that which is lost. The idea of the the cause that we know not seeking out. 
You see, there's things that we don't see just in our normal everyday life. And it's the death and the disease that is ravaging this world around us. Our family is healthy, baby. But there's a family next door that is dying, and they don't want you to see that disease and death in their home. So they hide it. But you are a believer. You know what the Word of God says. If they don't have Christ, they're dying. You respond to that Word, and as God moves, you move. We all need something in order to live this out. We need something. So what is that something? Very simply put, he's known as the Holy Spirit. But I would like to go through and give a more practical definition of what this is because all of you in here have the Holy Spirit. So to make it sound, this is why a message like this can be dangerous is because you can say, well, I already have that. And yet what you need is Acts chapter 4. You need a shaking in your life and an impartation of a spirit of boldness. We already have Pentecost. It's already here. It's already come. The deposit, the earnest of the Holy Spirit is available to anyone who believes. Anyone who enters into Christ has full access to the life of God. And you can live today. However, you must allow that life to be cultivated and to come out with fruit And that's where you're needing something. You're needing something to take you from where you're at now to where you must be. And ironically, it's the same thing that brought you to Christ in the first place and the same thing that sponsored life, the same thing that's been bearing a changed and reformed existence already. Same thing. However, very specifically, I want to go through Christian history to talk about what this is. What is that something? Let's call it unction. Unction is a good old-fashioned Christian word. I really like it. I've always liked the word unction. To describe what the saints of God ask for. When they talk about courage and boldness, when they talk about the preparation of the hearts of the souls that they're going to witness to, it's called unction. Something must happen before that, that soul will awaken. Something must happen before you're ready to give it. Something must be working. And it's not a work that you can do. However, you must pray for that something. And when you have that something, you know that you have that something. Do you have that something? Do you have the unction for reaching souls? Do you have the unction to deliver the gospel in this generation? If you don't have it, it's okay. Ask for it. Seek it. Knock. You have it there. You must go after it. Unction is the key to Christian function. The function of Christianity earns an F, which means failure, if it's missing the unction. I know, this is really creative. (laughs) But that failure and fruitlessness is transformed into fabulous fruitfulness when the F fervently seeks after the unction and receives it. Your weakness, your failure which all of us in this room could probably testify, yeah, give me an F. Let's just get it out of the table. I deserve an F for this. Our church would be, oh, I don't know, 20, 30,000 people by now, easily, if we had been practicing what we know. Easily. I'm not even saying, this is just, I mean, this is just walk in the park. And we don't need to steal from other churches. These are new believers that are being discipled. We would explode if we actually took this seriously. And so we deserve an F. Let's just receive the grade. However, when that F, when that failure seeks the unction, what happens? You have function. 
You see, it's okay to recognize our weakness. That's the source of your strength is to recognize it's, it's in our weakness that his grace is seen, that his strength is made perfect. This is, this is how the Christian realizes it. I can't do it. God nods along. Yeah, but you can. He nods along. So I need what you have. He goes, uh-huh. Ask. All right. Let's ask. Unction. Basically, unction is the idea of anointing. Now, that sounds like a Pentecostal word. It's just a Christian word, okay? There's nothing wrong with it. Anointing. And you're going to find that that's a very common word in Scripture, even though it's not always translated that way. The anointing for a spiritual office. So, you have a spiritual office. It's called Christianity. You're a believer and a witness of him in this age. And it's a difficult time to be a witness of Jesus Christ in America. So, you have an office. You need an anointing. You need unction for it. And that's what unction is. It's the anointing for a spiritual office. The ointment that furnishes the power to do the work of the minister. I know we don't usually think of power and ability to come through ointment. But it's something that's applied to the outside. It's given. Sort of like a medicinal ointment. But this is an ointment that doesn't just touch our skin. It touches our soul and it changes it. You need to be healed of your cowardice. So what do you need? You need some unction. You need the ointment of God to make you function as you ought. So here's where our concept of unction comes from. We have a verb in the Greek known as krio, and it means to anoint. It's actually an action of anointing, to smear with the holy ointment, to furnish with the power required for the office of Messiah. Wow. And so you're like, wow, that's not something obviously I'm going to have, until you recognize that you are the body of that Messiah. And wait till you understand what this is the basis of. But the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, this is what Jesus reads. Now, this is a reference back to Isaiah. So Jesus is reading something from the Old Testament, which is a foreshadow of what we could call the unctionized one, or the anointed one, or in the Greek, what is known as the Christ. The Christ is the long-anticipated one, but he will be the one upon whom the unction is given. And he will be enabled to fulfill the word of God and to do what the Father says and to speak what the Father is speaking. And the results of his unctionized work will turn the world on its head and the sinners will be saved. You see, something will happen because of this one who is unctionized. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He has given me unction to preach the gospel. To the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. He was unctionized to do his task. Now, he's God, I know. And though he was God, he received the same thing we need to do the same work we must do. Now, he did the Messiah's work. He's big M, Messiah, big C, Christ. However, we are called to enter into his body and to be his hands and his feet with the very same unction on us. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, that's the concept of Creo, the Christ. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. So this is Christos, which is the word that we understand for Christ, okay? We call Jesus Christ, but we use it as a noun. Technically, the word is an adjective. 
It's a descriptor of Jesus. He is the anointed. He's, he's the anointed Jesus. Like you could say, oh, the tall Jesus. Oh, the bearded Jesus. Oh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the strong Jesus. He's the anointed Jesus. He's that one that has the unction. He's the one that has the Holy Spirit upon him for power to preach the gospel. So it's the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one, the one foretold, the one fully furnished for the work, endued with the heavenly power. That's actually what the Christ is. And in the Hebrew, it means Messiah. Messiah in the Hebrew is translated straight across into Christ or Christos in the New Testament. So if you look at the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where it would say Messiah, it would say Christos or Christ. Now he which establishes us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God. So this is amazing. Now he which establishes us with you in who? In the anointed one. You see, when we say, what's your position, by the way? In Christ. You are in the unctionized one. Think about that. That's actually the idea. You are in the unctionized one. For what purpose? To get the unction. He has the unction for you. So how ridiculous would it be to be in, let's, let's give an illustration. Uh, I can think of a cheese shop in, in Idaho. I remember they made all sorts of cheese. Could you imagine being in a cheese shop in Idaho and never eating cheese? We have everything made available to us in Christ that we could possibly need. We're in the unction shop. Everything that is needed to carry out this job that we've received is available to us. Let's eat it. Let's take it. So now he which establishes us with you in that unctionized one and hath unctionized us is God. Christians. You see, now you have a whole new appreciation for this word. You see, we have creo, which is the verb, and then we have Christos, which is the adjective of Jesus. He is the anointed one. Capital M for Messiah, capital C for Christos. He is the one. However, faith in Jesus Christ steps into that anointed one, the one that was given the power to do the ministry, the one who was set aside from all creation to accomplish that impossible work. Well, that one has made available his life, and we enter into it, and we enter into that anointing, that unction. That's that's what's going on. That's what the word means. The anointed ones. You see, you could say the little Christ and you'd be accurate. You know how we say that? Are, are we acting like little Christ? But what's a little Christ? A little anointed one. Little M's for messiahs. In other words, we are deliverers. We are saviors. But small S, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you take away and bear the sin of the world. However, you are called to do the same work, but not the eternal saving work. He does it, but he does it through you. How will they know unless we are speaking it? How will they ever know the compassion of God unless these hands are used to wrap around and hug? How will they hear it unless our tongue is yielded? We are called to be Christians, the anointed ones, the smeared with life, the heavenly drenched, the spirit saturated, those who have been immersed in the anointed, the Christ, and have become the dwelling place of this anointing, this unction. Behold, this is a beautiful scripture when you think about it in light of what we're talking about. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment. It is like the precious unction 
the precious oil upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments as the dew of Hermon, as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. So Aaron is what in Israel? He was the high priest. So even as Aaron is anointed, you know there was two that were anointed, that unction was placed upon them for the task. It was the high priest of Israel, and it was the king of Israel. You know that Jesus is the high priest and the king? In other words, he's the double anointed. Now listen, what does that ointment do? It runs like oil, down, even down his beard. And then what does it do? It goes down to the skirts of his garments. It goes onto his body. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. You see, he has more anointing than Aaron. He is the eternal high priest in the heavens. And so this is likened to the dew of Hermon. It is like a dew that descends upon the mountains of Zion. It's an ointment that is applied. And there's a blessing that comes with it. What is it? Even life forevermore. What does life look like? Any living thing, what does life look like? You can tell something that's dead and living. Do we know what a living Christian even looks like anymore? We're so used to staring at dead corpses that we've gotten gotten used to it. We've accepted that as the replacement for the living, breathing thing that replicates itself, that brings new life everywhere it goes. The desperate hour of the confessors. That's where we're at. The church is dying. The church is withering up. You know that every year in this country, the church is shrinking. Those that are willing to identify themselves with Jesus Christ are growing less and less. Were we a Christian nation at one point in time? What, What happened to us? Built to repeat history unless there is unction. You see, we will repeat the failure of the German Protestant Christians in Nazi Germany. We're set up to do it. Right now, as it stands, we are set up to fail. We are headed straight for it. We are a silent church, and we have an Aryan paragraph that plop is being set right in front of us, and we are set up to be silent. Even those of us in here, We may disagree with it privately, but we're not about to risk our own head to disagree with it publicly. Let's just, you know, let sleeping dogs lie. Let's not ruffle anyone's feathers. Let's just be quiet. Where does that fall into the Christian life? You are here for one season on this earth. And if you don't speak, who do you think is going to speak? You are the ones entrusted with the words of truth. So we're built to repeat history unless there is unction. We will get the F unless we get the unction. And we turn this thing into a real functioning church. So I gave you some stats the other day. In fact, I think it was two weeks ago. I gave you the stats of, or maybe it was oh, three. I, don't, I can't remember. I shouldn't, I shouldn't even use numbers uh, here because uh, that's going to be proven even in my stats that I'm going to give you. I said that in Germany, there were 45 million Protestant Christians at the time when Hitler took control. 45 million. Out of 65 million people in Germany, 45 million of them were Protestant Christians. That's a big percentage, by the way, and that's a lot of Christians. Out of those 45 million, only 150,000 stood up and said anything. They were called the Confessing Church. 
150,000 out of 45 million. I made the statement that that was three in every 100. So I want to correct that, and obviously you can see on the screen, it's actually three in every 1,000. In Germany, at the time of Hitler, only three in every 1,000 Christians stood up and said something, and were willing to identify with the Jews and even share their fate if necessary. Hey, people, we have to do something. Oh, that's not our business. Are you sure about that? Are you sure it's not your business? Three in every 1,000. 445 million Protestant Christians in Germany in 1933, and only three in every 1,000 were willing to stand up and say that what Hitler was doing to the Jews was wrong. 7,000 impotent churches in 1933. So ironically, now we're going to go to Canada. 1933 is the exact time period when, uh, when Hitler was taking his chancellor position in Germany. Okay, so we have the onset, because the Second World War is going to start in the end of the 1930s. And so now we're in 1933, but let's go to Canada. And let's actually look at things in Canada. So this is excerpted from the Revival We Need by Oswald J. Smith, Chapter 2. From my boyhood, it has been my delight to read more or less of God's work along these lines, speaking of revival. But lately I've been led to lay all else aside and to literally devour anything I could lay hands on regarding revival work. And as I study the lives of those whom God has signally used all down the centuries, especially the labors of the Puritans, the early Methodists, and others of later years, and saw how wonderfully they were owned of him, how they worked for, expected, and got what they sought, I was compelled to admit that I saw nothing like it today, either in my own ministry or in the ministry of others. The average church does not aim at, let alone get, results. I'm going to read that line again just so it sinks in. The average church does not aim at, let alone get, results. Men preach and never even dream of anything happening. Oh, how far we have drifted, how powerless we have become. This is, this is what I want you to hear. It is reported that there were 7,000 churches that did not win a single soul for Jesus Christ in an entire year. That means that 7,000 ministers preached the gospel for a whole year without reaching even one lost soul. Supposing that they preached, putting it at a low average on 40 Sundays, not including extra meetings, that would mean that these 7,000 ministers preached 560,000 sermons in a single year. Think of the work, the labor, the money expended in salaries, etc. to make this possible. And yet, 560,000 sermons preached by 7,000 ministers in 7,000 churches to tens of thousands of hearers during a period of 12 months failed to bring a single soul to Christ. Now, my brethren, there is something radically wrong somewhere. There is either something the matter with these 7,000 ministers or else with their 560,000 sermons or with both. Today, we have 57 million Christians. That's an estimated uh, thing. There's actually more people that will say they're Christians, but when you sort of distill it down, this is somewhere in the realm. And, of course, those of you that lean more towards the pessimistic would say 57 million. Yeah, what kind of Christian are we talking about here? However, let's you know, set that aside for a second. 57 million Christians in America today. Okay, now that's out of a country, what do we have? Uh, 330 million or so uh, people in our country. And with every year that passes, the number shrinks. If the church was actually confessing, that ought not to happen. If only three in every 1,000 of those 57 million began to live as confessing Christians, the world would be altered. I'm saying three in every 1,000. If three in every 1,000 rose up and said, it's time to confess. 
you know, that the world would be changed? So that would mean 171,000 Christians stand up and say, hey guys, I'm willing to be counted for Jesus Christ. And I recognize that my purpose here on this earth is to actually bear fruit for my king. Let's go do it. So 171,000, imagine, willing to confess, prayerfully pursuing one new believer every month. That's what they're doing. They're pursuing one believer every month and discipling all these new believers to do the same. Now, one of the reasons we really stink at evangelism is because most of us were not evangelized. Most of us came into the kingdom through either a side door or a back door or through our family. We don't actually know what it's like to have someone boldly come up to us and say, where's your soul at? We don't know what it's like. And as a result, since we weren't changed by it, we don't know the power of it. So imagine that we go out, 171,000 go out, and they ignite in through the power of prayer and the sharing of the gospel, that new life. And then what do they do with that new believer? They disciple him to do the same. Listen to this. Year one, there'll be 2,052,000 new believers in this country. Now, if those new believers were all trained to do the same, in other words, we just say, hey, let's do this right, guys. The confessing church only breeds the confessing church. That's our lineage. And so if you're going to go out and begin to bring in disciples, you disciple them to do the same. Wouldn't it make sense? Year two, 24,624,000 new believers. Year three, 295,488,000 new believers. Year four, 3.5 billion new believers. Year five, the entire world. Because there's only 7.16 billion or so. You follow me? Whoa. Wow. Wowzer is uh, not strong enough a word. And that's just taking three in every thousand just beginning to function as Christians. So would it make sense that we in America are not functioning as Christians? We call ourselves the church and we say, oh yeah, 57 million of us are saying, oh yeah, yeah, I'm with him. Are we? Are we with him? Can you see God saying, prove it! And we can say, I can't do that. I can't go out. And he goes, I know you can't, but I've given you the unction for it. Ask, seek it. Get what you need to go and do the work you must. Gospel month in China. I think I've mentioned this in, in church at some point in time, but every month, and I think it's before the Chinese New Year, so it's right during like what we would say December, January time period in, in China. They have what's called Gospel Month. And this is the underground church. So a lot of these guys spend a good deal of their life in prison. And so this illegal church actually has a code it's like a gracious command unto its followers. And they say, all right, in the gospel month, every layman in the church, in other words, non-pastor, non-leader, is required to bring in three new believers by the end of this month. And every pastor, seven. You know that the church is thriving so dramatically because of this outward mindset. At the current rate of growth in the Chinese underground church, there will be more Christians in the illegal Chinese church in 10 years than there are people in the United States of America. Uh, wow. And they're putting us to shame, aren't they? It's illegal for them to be doing it. And they're growing at such a rate that literally there will be more Christians in the underground illegal church in China in 10 years than there are Americans in our country. So how do we access this unction? Leonard Ravenhill gives us the solution. He says, unction cannot be learned, only earned by prayer. Prayer, much prayer, says E.M. Bounds, answering the same question, is the price of preaching unction. 
Prayer, much prayer, is the one sole condition of keeping this unction. Without unceasing prayer, the unction never comes to the preacher. Without perseverance in prayer, the unction, like the manna, overlapped, breeds worms. Ian Bounds says, This unction comes to the preacher not in the study, but in the closet. It is heaven's distillation in answer to prayer. It is a sweet exhalation of the Holy Spirit. It impregnates, suffuses, softens, percolates, cuts, and soothes. It carries the word like dynamite, like salt, like sugar. Makes the word a soother, an arranger, a revealer, a searcher. Makes the hearer a culprit or a saint. Makes him weep like a child and live like a giant. Opens his heart and his purse as gently, yet as strongly as the spring opens the leaves. This unction is not the gift of genius. It is not found in the halls of learning. No eloquence can woo it. No industry can win it. No prelatical hands can confer it. It is the gift of God, the signet set to his own messengers. It is heaven's knighthood given to the chosen, true, and brave ones who have sought this anointed honor through many an hour of tearful, wrestling prayer. Seeing a theme here? Of course, when you start seeing Leonard Ravenhill and Ian Bounds on the screen, you know it has something to do with prayer. You see, both of these men preached what we understand is get the unction. Get the unction. You want to go change this world? Get the unction to do it. You cannot do it without the power. You try and go out and change the world, all you do is end up messing things up. But if you have God, you can't help but change the world. What you need is God. The unctionized often spend hours in in prayer daily. So if you look at history and you see these men that literally would stand up in front of a crowd, not even speak, and everyone is waiting with bated breath, And suddenly they say one line and everyone breaks out in crying and wailing and confession of sin. What was that? So we try and mimic it. It's like, what did he say? So we say it and nothing happens. Because it isn't what the man said. It's what the man is doing before he said it. He was a praying man. You see, prayer is always the catalyst from which this reviving, this unction springs forth into the body of Christ. So why would they spend their life this way? They spend hours in prayer daily. Now, this isn't a message just on prayer. Prayer is merely the catalyst. And so what we're talking about is the praying and the confessing church. So it's the church that is ready to confess because it understands the position of prayer in the process. So the greatest revivalists, the greatest messengers of the gospel throughout the ages spent more time in their prayer closet than any of us. Charles Spurgeon I wonder how long we might beat our brains before we could plainly put into words what is meant by preaching with unction. Yet he who preaches knows its presence, and he who hears soon detects its absence. Samaria in famine typifies a discourse without it. Jerusalem with her feasts of fat things full of marrow may represent a sermon enriched with it. Everyone knows what the freshness of the morning is when orient pearls abound on every blade of grass. But who can describe it, much less produce it of itself? Such is the mystery of spiritual anointing. We know, but we cannot tell it to others what it is. It is as easy as it is foolish to counterfeit it. Unction is a thing which you cannot manufacture, and its counterfeits are worse than worthless. Yet it is in itself priceless and beyond measure needful if you would edify believers and bring sinners to Christ. So one of the illustrations that Charles Spurgeon gives is the fact that it's like the orient pearl of the dew that is on the blade of grass. How did it get there? How do you put it there? No one knows how it gets there. No one knows how to put it there. And yet that's what the anointing is like. What is your life weighed down by? Are you a blade of grass in your own moisture? 
Or are you a blade of grass carrying around that orient pearl of dew that shows forth the pearl of great price with everything you do? As the dew of Hermon, as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. He is a dew upon us. There's a picture of the anointed one right there. It's the one who carries like a dew drop that weighs down us as blades of grass or grains of wheat, stalks of wheat. Ian Bounds. This divine unction is the feature which separates and distinguishes true gospel preaching from all other methods of presenting the truth and which creates a wide spiritual chasm between the preacher who has it and the one who has it not. It backs and impregnates revealed truth with all the energy of God. Unction is simply putting God in his own word and on his own preachers. By mighty and great prayerfulness, it is all potential and personal to the preacher. It inspires and clarifies his intellect, gives insight and grasp and projecting power. It gives to the preacher heart power, which is greater than head power. And tenderness, purity, force flow from the heart by it. Enlargement, freedom, fullness of thought, directness, and simplicity of utterance are the fruits of this unction. All the minister's efforts will be vanity or worse than vanity if he have not unction. Unction must come down from heaven and spread a savor and feeling and relish over his ministry. And among the other means of qualifying himself for his office, the Bible must hold the first place, and the last also must be given to the word of God in prayer. Without this unction, there are no true spiritual results accomplished. That could be the summary of everything we've talked about so far. As Leonard Ravenhill says, with all thy getting, get unction. If you don't have it, you're a worthless preacher, you're a worthless evangelist, you're a worthless man even in the prayer closet. Ironically, you need the deposit of the Spirit even for prayer. But then what you're asking for in prayer is unction. And when you get unction, what do you do? More praying. But you have that which you need to now go forth, for you are a ready vessel to deliver something that actually will work as opposed to something that will just make people mad. Without this unction on the preacher, the gospel has no more power to propagate itself than any other system of truth. This is the seal of its divinity. Unction in the preacher puts God in the gospel. Without the unction, God is absent and the gospel is left to the low and unsatisfactory forces that the ingenuity, interest, or talents of men can devise to enforce and project its doctrines. Stony hearts await us out there. We all know it. We're entering a culture with a message like this and we recognize that the hearts are stony. They have been gospelized already. They're hardened to it in many ways. Now we have a couple options. We can give up on them. That is one option. And I'm sure many of us in here have thought about that option. Or we could allow God to weigh us down with his due, to bend us, and to say, God, you still care. Now, are they deserving of hearing the gospel a second time? I don't know how I could answer that. I don't think any of us were deserving to even hear it one time. However, if God's heart is still beating for them, are you willing to allow your heart to be revived to beat for them too? Are you willing to go out to the stony hearts of this age and generation in this very country? Because actually there are other countries that are far more receptive, and I think we should go there too. However, are we willing to take first things first and say, this is our backyard. Let us not forsake our backyard for someone else's. Let us remember our backyard and not just look at other fields. But may we remember that we were planted here, and this is the field. Just as a farmer might have a plot of land, he doesn't go 
over to someone else's plot and look at it and stare at it and take fruit from it. What he says is first things first. Now that other farmer will probably say, hey, come over here. I don't know how you're getting such fruit over there, but could you help me with my field too? And we say, absolutely, I would love to come. And that's how God sends us forth into the harvest field. But we have a harvest field right in front of us. We have, and I know it's stony hearts. I recognize that. However, every great movement of God, they weren't done in lands of just eager readiness. They were done through the power of prayer to see stony hearts cracked open. What gives a greater testimony? You know how great a testimony it would be for America to humble itself? It would be a pretty great testimony. I know most of us are like, yeah, right. And right there shows our problem. We don't believe that God can do it. We don't understand the power of our God. If we go forward without the unction, we will fail. When the hammer of logic and the fire of human zeal fail to open the stony heart, unction will succeed. You see, this isn't something we can do, but it is something we can ask for. Aggressive Christianity. This is a call to action issued by the Salvation Army in 1880. This is written by Catherine Booth, and I tell you what, it resonates with me. I just, I'm going to use it as a pry bar for what we're about to head into. Catherine Booth says, What if we could erase from our minds all knowledge of the history of Christianity from the close of the period described in the book of Acts, and then looking at the book of Acts, sit down and try to calculate what was likely to happen in the world? Could you imagine Eric with his math? His fuzzy math. But Eric, with his math, actually beginning to look at this, I'd say, oh, in three years, the entire world, the known world at the time, is easily going to be taken for Christ. And that's exactly what was happening. It was headed in that direction. The entire, what, all Asia went after Christ? So it says, and then sit down and try and calculate what was likely to happen in the world. We would most likely expect very different results. A radically changed world is the outcome of it all. A system which started with such power under such promises and declarations on the part of its author and producing, as it did in its first century, such gigantic and momentous results. We would have thought, if we knew nothing of what, it had, what has intervened from then until now, that the whole world would have fallen long ago to the influence of that system and would have been brought under the authority of its great originator and founder. I say from reading these acts and from observing the spirit which moved the early disciples that we should have anticipated 10,000 times greater results. And in my opinion, this anticipation would have been perfectly rational and just. I agree. I mean, we're so used to the results that we stop asking the question, what happened? Why have we lost it? Why are we accepting where we're at today? This is the truth. The creator God has come forth into this world and condescended and humbled himself and said it is finished and then has made available to his church all the power to do the work. Excuse me? Am I missing something here? Introducing John Praying Hyde. So we had Praying Johnny, and this is not him. This is Praying Hyde. The Praying Missionary to India. John Praying Hyde is probably one of my great influencers. If I could make a short list, he's definitely in the top ten of the most influential men in my life. And so when I was preparing this message, this was an illustration that came to my mind, and I wanted to include it just so that you can begin to grab a hold of, get a practical vision for what this looks like. So the question for all of us, what if John Praying Hyde's life and focus became a pattern for our church? Just want to set it out there. 
What if we began to think and reason and allowed our life to be built after this pattern that we're about to see? First of all, they had a, a convention, and I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it. I want to say Silkiot, but if someone knows how the Indian vernacular would work, it's probably like Silkiot or something. But I always say Silkiot. Uh, convention. It was once a year, and all the missionaries would gather, and it was life-transforming to these missionaries. John Hyde, it was usually, I mean, he would spend hours and days and weeks praying. And in fact, the entire conference, they had a prayer room, and he would be praying the whole time, and then he would come out and speak like one message, and the whole place would just be on its face. But everything flowed out of prayer for this man. He was a praying man. And so at one of the conventions, this is what it says, it was about this time that John Hyde laid hold of God in a very definite covenant. This was for one soul a day. Remember, this is in India. India is hard soil. So he lays hold on God in prayer for one soul a day. For an entire year, he's going to go after one soul a day. And he knows, he knows that God is going to give it to him. So he is confident of at least one soul a day. Not less, not inquirers simply. You know how, can't you see our math too? It's like, well, they inquired, that counts. Not inquirers, but a soul saved, ready to confess Christ in public and be baptized in his name. By the end of that year, more than 400 were gathered in. One man. A praying man. He spent his days praying, and then he would go out, and he would find that soul. And obviously, he found more than one in some of those days. Was he satisfied? Far from it. How could he possibly be so long as his Lord was not How could our Lord be satisfied so long as one single sheep was yet outside his fold? But John Hyde was learning the secret of divine strength, the joy of the Lord. For after all, the greater our capacity for joy, the greater our capacity for sorrow. Thus it was with the man of sorrows, he could say, These words have I spoken unto you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. John Hyde seemed always to be hearing the good shepherd's voice saying, Other sheep I have, other sheep I have. No matter if he won the one a day, or the two a day, or four a day, he had an unsatisfied longing, an undying passion for lost souls. Here is a picture given by one of his friends in India. So this is what someone else, one of his friends in India wrote about him. As a personal worker, he would engage in a man, he would engage a man and talk about his salvation. By and by, he would have his hands on the man's shoulders, be looking him very earnestly in the eyes. Soon he would get the man on his knees, confessing his sins and seeking salvation. Such a one he would baptize in the village by the roadside or anywhere. So the next year, after 400 souls came in that year in India, some of the toughest soil in all the world, 400 souls, one man. Then he covenants with God for two a day. Again, John Hyde laid hold of God with a definite and importunate request. This time it was for two souls a day. The result was over 800 more souls gathered in. True stories. One man. Could you imagine if each of us We're willing to have that dewdrop bend us. Four souls a day. The guy skips three and goes straight to four. I'm uncomfortable with one. Aren't you feeling just vulnerable? Like, well, one one a year? One every three years? I'm sure I could aim for that. One a day. The 800 souls gathered in since last year's convention did not satisfy John Hyde. God was enlarging his heart with his love. Once again, he laid hold on God with holy desperation. How many weeks it was, I do not remember, but he went deeper still with Christ into the shadows of the garden. He at length got the assurance of four souls a day. 
I remember John telling me that in those days, if on any day four souls were not brought into the fold at night, there would be such a weight on his heart that it was positively painful and he could not eat or sleep. Then in prayer, he would ask his Lord to show him what was the obstacle in him to his blessing. He invariably found that it was the want of praise in his life. This command, which had been repeated in God's word hundreds of times, surely it is all important. John Hyde would actually, I remember hearing different stories of John Hyde. I mean, this man's life has had such an impact on me. He was for a day, and it was late at night, and he was walking on the road with a guide through India, and he knew that there were four souls, but it was getting dark, and they needed to find a place to sleep that night. So they went into the house, and John Hyde knew that there would be four souls in this house. There had to be, because it was, the night was almost gone, and we need four souls today. And there were only three in the house. And so he led those three to Christ, and then he said, there's one more. Uh, is there another one here? No, there's not another one here. There must be another one. And so he, even to the point of rudeness, was asking for this other soul. And even his guide was like, there isn't another person here. And so finally someone said, well, there's this guy out there in the shack. Bring him to me. Four souls. I, yeah. <laughs> Make sure. My math is really scary today. <laughs> the ache of the barren. In one of the Silkiot conventions... This was one of the prayers of a man who prayed out. And I want us to just recognize this is very similar to the prayers we're praying. Lord, give me thy heart of love for sinners, thy broken heart for their sin, thy tears with which to admonish night and day. But, oh, Lord, I feel so cold. My heart is so hard and dead. I, I am so lukewarm. Quote, unquote. That's our prayer, isn't it? You know that this other brother in the convention gently rebuked him for praying this. And this is what he said. The rebuke of the friend. Why are you looking down at your poor self, brother? Of course your heart is cold and dead. But you have asked for the broken heart of Jesus, his love, his burden for sin, his tears. Is he a liar? Has he not given what you asked for? Then why look away from his heart to your own? It's okay. Your, your heart's cold and dead. You don't function off of that heart. You function off of his heart. It's made available to you. Let's seek his heart. We can readily acknowledge with the the sinner in this story, and say, yes, we're barren. We do not have the heart as we ought. And even those of you that are burdened, even those of you that are going out and bringing people to Christ, it's funny, but just like John Hyde, you're unsatisfied because God says, I have more sheep. I have more sheep out there. Who will carry that burden? <clears throat> Calling out the 0.3 percenters. You know, when you have three out of every thousand, that equals 0.3%. 0.3% of the church is the confessing church. Uh, that's, that's a sad statement, I know. But let's call forth this 0.3%. What if three out of every thousand evangelical churches in America took up the gospel challenge? So let's imagine that we could apply that 0.3% to churches. And imagine that 0.3% of all churches actually were willing to be the confessing church. Now, some of you could say that's an unfair statistic. I'm sure there's a lot more. I hope there are. However... What if we were to say, hey, church, those of you that are willing to be the confessing church in such an hour, what if we called forth the 0.3%? And what if 20 members of each congregation in those 0.3% of all the churches in America began praying for and actively pursuing one new believer a month? Okay, so we're talking pathetic numbers here. Aren't you just depressed with the numbers I've given you? 0.3% of all the churches in this country 
that we say, would you be willing to participate and have 20 of your congregants commit and covenant together to go after one soul a month and then disciple them to go after one? I mean, this is pathetic, isn't it? Just look at this. That would, there's 300, actually there's more than that, churches in America, but I have a good round number here, so let's go with it. There's actually around 330 to 350,000 churches in America, Christian churches, because there's a lot of other types of churches. These are Christian churches. That's a, that's a lot, by the way. So 0.3% equals 900 churches. 900 is what we're starting with. So if 900 churches each submitted 20 soldiers to this battle for souls, and each new believer gained, each new believer gained was discipled to emulate this lifestyle and attitude towards Christ and the lost, then this Salvation Army would start out consisting of 18,000 Christians. So now, to start out this, we have 900 churches that are supplying 18,000 confessing Christians. That's our starting block. And that's one out of every 3,000 of professing Christians currently in America. One out of 3,000 is what we're asking for. In year one, we would have 216,000 new believers. In year two, 2,592,000 new believers. In year three, 31 million new believers. In year four, 373 million new believers. In year five, 4.5 billion new believers. That's with 0.3% of all the churches only yielding up 20 soldiers to this cause. Every creature vision is actually... Right there, and I know people have even told this to me. What's funny is I've had people in this church that are trying to communicate this to me. Eric, did you know? I'm like, yeah, sure. But it's like struck me that if we just start functioning as the church, we will function as the church, and the world will literally be transformed. What's happening in America? The church is not functioning as the church. What can one church really do? Uh, this, is, this is my favorite part of the message. The statistics, if we figured 200 of us signed up for active duty. So let's say the rest of the church, no one is willing. Not one other church out of 300 plus thousand in America is willing to do anything about it. And they just shrug their shoulders and say, who cares? But what if we, what if we, one church, were to yield up 200 saints and soldiers to the cause? That's not that much for us. We have thousands Technically, we have thousands that watch online. We have well over a thousand graduates from Ellerslie, and we have us. Uh, we could come up with 200, don't you think? Just imagine this 200, and we take this job seriously. So imagine church wide, so all of us together, we go after one soul a week, okay? Throughout the entire year, all of us are praying and going after one soul, all of us together. So it's not saying that we each have one soul, but all of us together. It's like, oh, I didn't get it. Did you? And then Steve Rosen says, I got one. We're like, oh, oh, oh that was close. <laughs> we would have 52 new believers needing discipleship in this upcoming year. No system with which to put it. We have no room for them even in this building. 52. Isn't that a pathetic number compared to some of the other numbers I'm showing you? And you're like, we're all intimidated by it. Like, what are we going to do? We don't have chairs for that. Church-wide, if we went church-wide, so this is all of us working together, one soul a day, seven souls a week, that would be 365 new believers needing discipleship in this upcoming year. In other words, together, it's basically around 30 new believers a month. Why? I mean, that's all of us together, right? I mean, I go and speak and lead people to Christ and what I do all the time. However, they're, they're there. We're talking here. These are ones that we're discipling. 
Okay? These are ones that we're actually bringing in and training to do the same. So if 200 of us, each praying for one soul a week, that would equal 10,400 new believers needing discipleship in this upcoming year. 200 of us each praying for one soul a day would be 73,000 new believers needing discipleship in this upcoming year. Could you imagine if we pulled the John Hyde and all of us were bent with that dew drop and we went after one soul a day? Now, I know, that sounds like ridiculous. We're in America, you can't do that. India was a lot harder than here. Could you imagine we'd have 73,000 new believers in this next year that we need to disciple? Could you imagine trying to figure out the organizational system for that? 200 of us each praying for two souls a day. That'd be 146,000 new believers needing discipleship in this upcoming year. 200 of us each praying for four souls a day. It'd be 292,000. This is one year. This is us being the church. This is just one church. Being the church. 200 of us each praying for one soul a week for three years. So if we as, as a group went after one soul a week, when we prayed, we prayed for that one soul. Just one. As a group, one soul a week. And we would disciple them. We do this for three years. With each of our 52 converts each year praying for one soul a week. That'd be 10,400 year after year one. That would be, you know, that's, so I, I need to correct this. This is for each one of us going after one soul a week. So I need that, that's an important distinguishing. So we have 10,400 in year one and 540,800 in year two, 28 million in year three. And that's with each of us going after one soul a week. Not an ama- that, I mean, we're not even talking John Hyde stuff here. We're talking little baby toddler stuff. Gaga goo goo. We build our life around the pursuit of souls. The reason most of us can't even dream of this is our life isn't built around it. We don't wake up with the intentionality to pursue. When we're praying, we're not praying for that soul that we're going to see that day to bring them into the kingdom. We're not even conscious of this pursuit. 200 of us each praying for one soul a month for three years. So now we're, we're saying each of us is going after just one soul a month. Each of us. Just in this room. With each of our 12 conferences each year praying for one soul a month. So in other words, we're replicating in kind. That would be 2,400 in year one. 28,800 in year two and 345,600 in year three. And that's with each of us going after one soul, praying for one soul, finding one soul, leading that soul to the cross, and then entering them into discipleship. In three years, 345,000. Pause right here for a metaphor. Do you remember uh, the Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dream? And he had a dream of the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine. We live in a time period in America where we have, let's call it this. Imagine that I were to tell you today, I had a dream. And in this dream, there were seven years of plenty left for the church of Jesus Christ. We actually could speak. We could actually go after souls. And then after that, it's going to be on lockdown. What would we be willing to do in those seven years? What was Joseph's wisdom unto Pharaoh? Begin to store this up. Take advantage of this. You see, we have seven years, and so that's what I want you to begin to realize. If we were to start just thinking from the seven-year vantage point as the church, and as a local church, and we were to say, you see, we can't make decisions for other churches out there. We can appeal to them. We can challenge them. I travel around and I speak. I can speak to them. So there's other things we can do. However, let's say let's first start with us. 
And let's allow us to be bent by that dewdrop and not expecting anyone, if, if it needs to be, outside. But we're going to actually begin to share the gospel and then the new people that we bring in, we disciple them to go and share the gospel. So the seven years of plenty. Some perspective, please. If 200 of us covenanted together to seriously alter the course of history and reestablish the ancient strength of the Almighty in this dying world, and we were all willing to each individually seek the unction to prayerfully and actively seek one soul a month over these next seven years of plenty. So each of us is going to go after one soul a month. So when we wake up in the morning, what are we praying for? There's a lot of things we could pray for, but one of the things that we are definitely praying for is unction and for that one soul that month that we would see them, that we would recognize them, that they would be prepared, that we would be prepared, and that they would be bent to the power of the gospel. Okay? So if we are doing this as a body, and we were to disciple these new believers of the, in the unction of the Spirit-empowered life to go and do the same, what might the church of Jesus Christ look like at the close of these next seven years? Year one, and these are the same numbers I just gave you, uh, because it's the same uh, math, but 2,400 new believers at the end of year one. I know. That... That's not that impressive in the whole scope of things. However, you, I mean, just try and figure out logistically how we're going to handle that. We need to disciple them too. 28,800 new believers at the end of uh, year two. Windsor's population is 20,000. So that's 8,000 more than even in the entire community of Windsor. Year three, 345,600 new believers. Northern Colorado is 554,000. Almost all Northern Colorado in three years. This is one a month. One. Could you imagine if one of you accidentally had two? <laughs> Year four. 4,147,200 new believers. Colorado's population is 5.3 million. Almost the entire state of Colorado gained in four years. Year five. 49,766,400 new believers. The entire country of Canada is only 36 million. Year six, 597,196,800 new believers. That's the, more than the total of the U.S., Canada, Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. Holy gained in six years. Year seven, 7.16 billion new believers. The population of the world is 7.13 billion. One church. Isn't that amazing? Now, there's other people that are probably sharing the gospel out there other than our one church. So just imagine, if you have, if we as the church have unction, now I recognize this is without resistance. This is just sort of like, oh, yeah. you know, stretch, wake up in the morning, get your soul. This is a battle, and we recognize that we'll likely lose our life in the process. And that as these numbers are growing, heads are being lopped off, those numbers. In other words, this is war for the souls of men. However, when those heads are removed, guess what? We know where they're going. You see, we are in this for the glory of King Jesus. And I don't know what it needs to look like, but I'm giving you some basic models. Could you imagine if we actually pulled a John Hyde and every single one of us in here was for a day? I never did the math on that. But that would be uh, pretty impressive. Hey, guys, I've got an idea. Let's go get the unction and help Jesus build a megachurch. Here's a guy that can't stand megachurches. And I'm saying, what other choice do you have if you really are bringing in new believers and discipling them? See, what a megachurch is, is it's stealing all the other local Christians from the other churches. Churches are always in competition. What about all 
of the tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people in this country, Canada, Mexico, the surrounding Caribbean and South America and Africa, Asia. I mean, they're all over the place. We're not hurting for people to bring into the church. So let's, let's build the right sort of megachurch. New believers ready to go out and replicate what has taken place in their life. Abby's first song. So it's really neat because Abby came out. I was just about to push send on these notes to Sandy so she could get them printed. I always do a final edited version. And Abby comes out uh, of, of the room and, and comes up to me. And she has this little folded piece of paper. She says, Daddy, I wrote this. And I go, oh, neat. She goes, could you read it? Oh, sure. And I'm like just about to push send. I'm like, yeah, sure. And I open it up, and at the top it says, here is my song. I want to read for you the lyrics to Abby's first song. Do you guys remember the story of Hudson's first sermon? Hudson was the first one to ever give a sermon here on this stage. There were like three people in the audience sitting on the floor. We had no chairs in here. And Hudson's sermon was, uh, did you know that God wants us to rescue the orphan? That was the first sermon ever preached at Ellerslie. So here's Abby's first song. Just remember, this is right as I'm ready to push this uh, send on this sermon. It's called When the Wind Blows by Abby. When the wind blows, it's a really good time to come outside, believe in him. Now, I know that might sound a little confusing. However, here's what I see. When the wind blows, it's a really good time to go out there. It's a really good time to start sharing it. What are we going to share? Believe in him. So that's what I saw in this. It was a little profound thing. Abby's first little song, I, she had little notes, like musical notes next to it. I said, is there a tune with this? She didn't know what I meant by that. <clears throat> the three-year gospel challenge. Imagine 120 students for three years. Now, we're moving into what we could call the, the Bible college phase of what we're doing. We're going to stretch out to a three- to four-year training program. As far as I know, we're still headed in that direction. However, messages like this have a way of changing things. For me, I've been greatly impacted by all of this to the point where every little thing is being evaluated. Everything is being brought before God. I'm willing to give up Ellerslie completely. I have no hold on any of this. It's all God's. And if he wants to do something different with it, what the, why would I want to get in the way and do something out of my power? If it's not born of him, it's a waste of time. Unless the Lord builds the house, I'm going to labor in vain. I want God to do this. And so I had this thought this morning. This is just my, my processing. And so I'm not saying that this is what we're going to do. I want you to begin to pray about this. When we meet on Tuesday night of this week, I'd like us to begin to pray about these things as a church. We need unction as individuals. We need unction as a church. We need wisdom as a church. God is doing something here, and we need to put up our sail and catch this wind. So imagine 120 students for three years. The reason I say 120 students is we have room for 120 students. So imagine 120 students, and they commit for three years. And they pray for four hours a day, Study for one hour, work eight hours a day, and evangelize four hours a day. Sleep seven. That's actually a pretty good sleep for a, a John praying Hyde sort of character. But imagine that each of these students is literally living out what I'm saying. They're literally taking a season of their life, and they're saying, God, train us as the church. And it's a pattern that they never get out of. In other words, they're still working. It's the normal pattern. See, the most, most of us, it's like we have kids or we have a job. And I'm saying, let's begin to build a pattern. Could you imagine if we could start out the young people with the pattern to say, no, you make this a priority in your life. It's not something you try and fit in in the seasons that are convenient, but we are here for a reason. And let's make our life about this. 
I don't know what would happen in three years when you have 120 people every day praying for the soul that they're going to meet that day and for sharing the gospel and literally seeking uh, God's end. I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just dreaming. All I'm saying is what if we begin to use our resources? We have a lot of strength in this room. What if we begin to use our resources more strategically to a common end as opposed to spreading out our, our strengths everywhere? But we begin to say, let's work together to get this done. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.